0: We're continuing from where we were last time. Last time we were talking about scholasticism. That was part one. This time we'll be focusing on part two. So this is scholasticism part two. Um, and this one I'm going to focus on the scholastic thinkers themselves, the great schoolmen. So if you remember the, the last lesson, I mainly talked about the rise of the university because there's two big things that happen in terms of intellectual advancement during this time. You have the uh, founding of the university system in Europe, and I explained how that all came about. Um, and then what is a necessary corollary with that is all the schoolmen, the scholars that came out of it and became the big shot teachers in these universities. And so those, so this movement was called scholasticism, uh, and it reaches its peak in the, the uh, 13th century, which would be the 1200s. Um, so 12th and 13th centuries, you're talking about the 11 and 1200s, where you have these big names. And we're going to take a look at this this list. So I have a lot to get through. I'm going to try to talk fast and not go on rabbit trails just so I could hopefully finish this one. But last time I finished the, um, I, I finished the, the university system and I kind of described scholasticism itself. I talked about Aristotle being recovered and how um, these thinkers at first were debating whether or not you could use Aristotle. Uh, the early folks didn't like him, but then by the time you get to the uh, 1200s, they love him. I talked about uh, realism versus nominalism. Hopefully you remember all that. And if you don't, again, it's it's in the last lecture. I don't have time to go through all that now. And so when I was done then, I moved into the first scholastic thinker, which was Anselm of Canterbury. But he was the only one I got through last time. And really, he's, a, he's more of a proto-scholastic because he existed before the universities, but he encapsulated what scholasticism was. So again, if you want to remember about Anselm, go back and listen to the last one. But the folks I'm covering today are the folks on this list. Peter Abelard, Peter Lombard, Robert Grosseteste, Alexander of Hales, uh, Bonaventura, Albertus Magnus, Thomas Aquinas, Dun Scotus, and William of Ockham. A lot of people. Now, half the talking, half the discussion is going to be on Thomas Aquinas. He's by far the most important historically. Um, but I'm going to try to cover uh, all these guys and again... <laughs> It's a lot to get through in a short amount of time. So with that, let me just jump to Peter Abelard. I have already talked about him in the context of Bernard of Clairvaux. Remember they were enemies. Bernard was the great pastor of Europe that um, inspired the second crusade. But one guy he couldn't stand was this guy, Peter Abelard, the scholastic. And so his life dates, 1079 to 1142. He was the most brilliant Catholic thinker of the 12th century or the 1100s. Now, I mentioned it in passing last time, but he had a stellar career that he blew with a moral failure and its drastic consequences. And I'll uh, go over that again in, in a minute. But, you know, a little bit about his life. He was born in France. He studied at the famous Cathedral School of Notre Dame. And if you recall, what, uh, last week I mentioned, or last time, I mentioned that these universities, some of them came out of the cathedral schools. Before you had universities, education was either done in monasteries or in the big cathedrals that had schools. Well, what cathedral is bigger and better than Notre Dame? Probably not any, right? And so he came out of that cathedral during the transition period where the University of Paris was uh, coming, breaking out of the cathedral school mold and becoming a university. And so, again... um, you know, studied there. Uh, he he was uh, ablard a little bit about him because he was a genius. Even when he was young, he was smarter than his professors who had their doctorates. And so he was very frustrated with the teaching of the school's head. So he started saying, "Don't listen to this guy. He's a bozo. Come listen to me. I'll give rival lectures." And the crazy thing is, he's a student. Okay, if a student goes and gives rival lectures to the professor, usually the student's a moron and doesn't have anything intelligent to say. And eventually the students figure that out. In Abelard's case, everybody liked his lectures more than the schoolmaster. Because again, even as a young man, brilliant, he was a genius, he was able to figure things out. Um you know, way, way ahead of his time. So he eventually becomes the head of the University of Paris and students will flock from all over Europe to learn from him. Now the reason Bernard didn't like him is he, he was willing to question church, church doctrine in the sense like he accepted it, but he wanted people to debate about it. And Bernard was saying, you know what, some things are too holy to debate about. You know, as humans, we're not in a position to say God is right or wrong on this, where Abelard's saying, well, let's use our reason and, and argue about this. Even though he landed on Catholic doctrines, just the idea was considered dangerous by Bernard. But anyhow, very famous guy, but how does he blow it? He blows it with a love affair with a a teenage girl named Heloise. She was the beautiful 17-year-old niece of one of Notre Dame's officials. Um, She was very intelligent for her age, and even though he was twice her age, he loved her. By the way, that was kind of normal back then. So a 34-year-old man being with a 17-year-old woman, that was regular marrying Setups back then, um, so it seems weird to us today. But back then, it would not have been. But he fell in love with her. Uh, he persuaded her uncle to let him live in their house so he could tutor her. And the naive uncle's like, "Sure, that sounds like a great idea." Well, you know, their passion for each other blossomed. It turned into this romantic love affair. In fact, it's uh, considered one of the uh, the great. Uh, romantic tragedies of the Middle Ages. Long story short, she got pregnant. Once her her, her uncle found out, he hired a bunch of thugs to castrate Peter. So no more romance for him. And so he had to live the rest of his life in a monastery. And then uh, Heloise lived the rest of her life as a nun. And so Stellar career, but moral failure cost him it all. Now, let me talk about his most famous work, Sic et non. And if you don't know Latin, what's wrong with you? Just kidding. Sic et non means yes or no. Um, and, And pretty much... And he wrote this after his downfall, just to let you know, when he's not teaching anymore, he's got a lot of time to think, so why not write? And he writes this in 1122. What he does here is he considers 158 theological questions. He sets, and so he takes each question and he sets along other statements from the Bible, the church fathers and authoritative statements from church teaching, which appear to contradict each other. So here you have this question, here's what the Bible says. In multiple places, here's what church fathers say, um, and here's what church councils say. And sometimes these contradict each other. Now, he does not offer an answer. He leaves it there because he wants people to figure out the answers for themselves. You know, but that's the type of stuff that made Bernard mad. Like, you can't just put that out there and then tell people to figure it out for themselves because they might come to the wrong conclusion. But again, he was trying to provoke people to figure out how to harmonize these things themselves. This was a method that the law schools were already teaching, and he learned that from them. And because the the lawyers at this time were already harmonizing contradictions in canon law, like the, the legal system of that time, and they got pretty good at it. And so Abelard's like, learn how to do this when it comes to theology, now, because of this kind of stuff, he was always in trouble with church authorities, as I've mentioned, most notably Bernard. But despite that, his lectures and writing had a huge impact on the 12th century West. And I would say his style of sic et non is what um, really inspires Peter Lombard, who we're going to talk about next, uh, to create really the world's first real systematic theology. Um, so let's move to Peter Lombard. He is rightly called the father of systematic theology. And if you don't know what systematic theology is, I'll I'll explain it as I go on. But he was born in Lombardy, Italy. So that's why he's called Peter Lombard. You know, that would almost be like, you know, if you didn't have a last name and you were born here, they'd be like, oh, Rachel, California or whatever. But so he was Peter, uh, Peter Lombard. He studied at Bologna, which he learned a bunch of Bologna. No, he studied there. And, um, you know, learned law there. And then he studied at Paris, the University of Paris, under the tutelage of Abelard. So Abelard taught him. Then eventually he becomes a professor at Paris. And he becomes the, also the churchman of Paris, the bishop in 1159. But he dies shortly after that. Now, what he is most known for is the four books of sentences. In short, it's just called sentences. And he wrote it between 1147 and 1151. Now, the word sentence... Does not mean sentence, like our version of sentence. Back then, it meant opinions. So, his four books of opinions. And what he did is he followed what Abelard did, and he took co- quotes from the Bible, quotes from the church fathers, the ecumenical councils, and other authorities, and laid them side by side on topics. And, and so it covered a wide range of topics. And so what he does is he divides, divides them into four books. Now, what are the four books? The first book is the Trinity and Providence. So he takes just the Trinity and just God's control over creation and takes all that the Bible says on it, all that the church fathers say on it, all that the creeds say on it, and other authoritative sources as well. And, you know... Some of them are going to contradict, but he lays it all out there. Then for the second book, creation, sin, and grace does the same thing for those topics. Then the third was the incarnation, salvation, and moral virtues, which would be ethics. And then the fourth book was sacraments and eschatology, which eschatology refers to the end times, right? And so this was similar to Abelard's sick et non, but the big difference is Lombard, Gave the answers. Here's how you harmonize them. He doesn't just leave it there where you're wondering like, well, how do we, you know, get these things into harmony? He shows how through reason and philosophy you could actually um, harmonize these, these, not contradictory, but conflicting statements. And sometimes they were contradictory. course, sometimes church fathers contradict the Bible, right? Now, we Protestants just say, well, that's easy. The church fathers are wrong. The Catholics can't say that because, again, they believe that that the Holy Spirit has been using the church fathers in a type of holy magisterium to rightly interpret Scripture. So they have to find a way to harmonize it. We don't. We could say they're just wrong on that point. It's a lot easier to be Protestant when it comes to that. Um, But The reason why this is the first systematic theology is because systematic theology is where you take a subject and you look at everything the Bible has to say about that subject, beginning to end from Genesis to Revelation, and you put together a biblical uh, summary of that doctrine. Then you look at everything that Christians have said throughout history about that same doctrine. And then you see how to apply it in our life. And so if you grab Wayne Grudem's systematic theology, same thing. You'll have the doctrine of God where he follows that exact path. And then next, the doctrine of Christ and then the doctrine of angels. That is what is systematic theology. Lombard is the first one to do that. And so because of that... The bottom line on the slide here rightly says that most systematic theologies, even to this day, live in the house that Lombard built. Um, They might not come to his same conclusions, but the way systematic theology is arranged, we're still following his model and his method, meaning present the biblical data, present what's been said throughout church history, and then show us how to apply it. That's systematic theology in a nutshell. So next about Peter Lombard. Uh, one thing that he's famous for besides just sentences, and by the way, sentences becomes the textbook for most theology, theological universities in the Middle Ages. But apart from that, he is also the first Roman Catholic to argue that the official number of sacraments was seven. Okay, so if a Roman Catholic tells you there's always been seven sacraments, well, no. Sometimes there was less, sometimes there was more. Peter Lombard In this time frame, 1100s is the one who finally says, no, these are the seven. And of course, if you have a Catholic background, you know, it's baptism, communion, confirmation, penance, marriage, ordination, and extreme unction. And for most people, they will only get to do six sacraments because you either marry or you get ordained, but you don't do both in in Roman Catholicism. Because remember, their clergy is supposed to be celibate. So he puts this list together in the 1100s, it's not even officially accepted until 1439. Okay? So if you think about it, the Protestant Reformation happens less than 100 years after that. So when, when people say, well, you Protestants just made stuff up, but we Catholics have the original teaching. It's like some of the stuff that is the bread and butter of Catholicism is less than 100 years older than when Martin Luther finally said, hey, this stuff's wrong. And so it's just it's good to know that, right, um, because they definitely take advantage of the ignorance of Protestants of what happened throughout history. Now, his teaching on each of the seven sacraments, it did not necessarily match what later became official Catholic doctrine. So he names the seven and what he says convinces people in his time, but The Catholic teaching on what each of the seven means will change over time. For example, when it comes to penance, he did not believe that the priest could actually cleanse you of your sin. So you go to the priest and, you know, I've sinned, bless me, Father. He's like, all right, say 12 Hail Marys and, you know, climb up those stairs on your knees and, and, you know, you should be good. Now, Lombard would say, listen, the priest saying this does not actually remove your sins. Instead, it's the Holy Spirit through your acts of penance that's doing it. The priest is just saying with his mouth what the Holy Spirit has already done. The priest has no effect on forgiveness of sins. Uh, priests can only reduce sins that are like, like penalties that the church gives. So if a church gives you a penalty, you know, then they could reduce that. But the things that the Bible says are sins, no. The priest has no power over that. It's the Holy Spirit. And even Thomas Aquinas is going to agree with Lombard and Summa Theologica, but eventually Aquinas will change his mind. Now, I say all this just to say Catholic doctrine later switched. They now actually believe it is the priest that removes your sins. The priest's very declaration uh, that your penance is accepted is what makes your penance accepted. So um, again, things change throughout history. Now, I do think this is a good time to talk about sacramental theology before I get to the, the next guy, because as Protestants, we don't believe in sacramental theology because the Bible doesn't teach it. <laughs> but you've been hearing the word sacraments probably a lot in this class. And, and, and of course, Roman Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy, they, they hold to a sacramental theology. So I need to at least explain what this means, especially in, in Western Europe of this time. So the church saw these seven rituals as imparting special grace, sanctifying grace. Like these rituals actually infuse you with grace. That's what sacramentalism is. Baptism gives you the grace of God. Penance gives you the grace of God. Marriage gives you the grace of God. Um, And it either leads to forgiveness of sins or um, makes you more holy in the eyes of God. But who owns the sacraments? The church. So you can only get grace from the church, right? So now if you go back to the early church, when we're talking about sacraments, they just saw them as signs. Sacraments to them were just signs. It's a sign of a spiritual reality. But Lombard is going to say, no, it's not a sign of God's applied grace, but it's actually the cause of grace. Baptism itself will forgive you, is what he would say. Penance itself will forgive you and remove these temporal sins. And so now the sacraments are the means of grace not a symbol that points to the grace. Now, by the time you get to the early 13th century, scholastic theologians will coin the phrase ex opere operato. And what that means is the act by itself. Okay, so it's the idea that, that it has nothing to do with being a symbol. The act itself will give you the grace. So, for example, that's why a baby that has no faith at all, just by being sprinkled, the act is what cleanses that sin. Um, And that's why like you'll have certain times when like pagan tribes would convert and all it takes is a chief to say, yep, we're Christians now. The rest of his people don't even know what Christianity is, but they walk under a tree with a priest sprinkling them. And the belief was, well, they're forgiven because it's the baptism itself that forgives them. doesn't matter if they believe, it's ex opere operato. Um, and so if you believe in ex opere operato, then it has nothing to do with the moral fitness of the priest or even of the person that receives it. Uh, all that matters is that it was performed correctly. Almost like it doesn't matter who does it, but if you cast the magic spell right, you know, then it's going to work every time. And that's just—that's not how the Bible never teaches anything like that, Um, you know. But to them, they're saying, "Look, the sanctifying grace from these sacraments—it flows." through the sacraments, as an objective reality, so you could have an unrighteous priest, even an unpenitent person, but if the act is done right, the grace will be infused. The schoolmen at the time the scholastic simply said that if you're gonna be a receiver of this, just don't set up a spiritual barrier, meaning don't do things that are not showing love to God and neighbor, don't like hate God and neighbor. It's not telling you to do positive, it's not telling you to actually love God and neighbor, it's just saying, Don't set the barrier up by hating them. Like you could be in a neutral position. You don't have to be good. You just don't have to be actively being bad. You don't have to have faith or faithfulness. Just don't hate God. And it'll work. The sacrament will work. Now, just to to do a little bit of truth in advertising, the early reformers were sacramentalists, but it was a little different. Okay, they believed that the sacraments... Had And they didn't believe in seven, but they believed like baptism and the Lord's Supper were a sacrament. And what they would say is that the sacraments don't depend on the worthiness of the clergy or upon your faith. And you might say, wait a minute, I thought the Protestants were all about faith. Yes, but none of them would say your faith saves you. They would say the work of Christ saves you. Um, That's what saves you, right? And so it's the work of Christ. It's your faith in Christ that then makes his work apply to you. And they would say the same thing. It's the work of Christ that would make baptism actually lead to forgiveness of sins. It's the work of Christ that makes the Lord's Supper have a sanctifying effect in you. So the difference between the early reformers and the medieval schoolmen was actually one of emphasis, um, but it wasn't entirely foreign to Protestantism. Now, we as Baptists we don't believe in sacraments. We believe in ordinances. So this whole point becomes moot to us. And I think if we were to open the Bibles and have this debate, we will win this one, you know, because you're not going to find this stuff in the Bible. Now, the next guy, fiery Britishman named uh, Robert Bob, no, anyway, Robert uh, Grosseteste. I, I always say his name wrong, but 1168 to 1263. He was a bishop in Eastern England, a pioneer scientist, pioneer scientist um, and a passionate priest. The interesting thing is he is more known to the secular world for his science writings than his theology. Um, So kind of an interesting guy, like he taught Roger Bacon and Roger Bacon's the one who gave us a key component of the scientific method, but it's what he learned from this guy. Um, So anyhow, but for our purposes, I mean, educated man, um, very educated and, and, and I mean, he knew Latin, Greek, Hebrew. He read Christian, Jewish, and Muslim works, probably one of the most educated men in Europe for his life dates. And his big focus was, we got to get the English people attending church, listening to the word of God. And so against the church, he says, I am not preaching in Latin. These people speak English. So I'm going to preach to them in English so they could hear the word of God and be moved by it. A very passionate preacher. And he also had guts. He would call out corruption in the kings of England, so sometimes they wanted him punished. He would even call out popes. In fact, he declared that Pope Innocent IV was the Antichrist doomed to go to hell, and he got away with it. You know, later people will say that about popes, and next thing you know, they end up uh, you know, being barbecued. They end up being uh, um, killed by fire. Uh, But this guy, he could say it because he lived so passionately consistent, and he, he was uh, and he was so beloved by the people he he pastored, he was going to be able to get away with this. As I mentioned, one of the most uh, educated guys of Europe, well-read on Aristotle for his time. In fact, he was the first that we know of that could absorb Aristotle's teachings on logic and physics and at the same time try to marry them um, to his Augustinianism. And you might say, well, why is that even important? Or why is that even uh, noteworthy? Augustine was a Platonist. Remember, Plato and Aristotle, that's like oil and vinegar. It's realism versus nominalism. And yet Robert was able to have a little bit of realism and a little bit of nominalism, and he made it work. And because he made it work, people after him would be able to make it work. Um, His scientific treatise on light and motion is, again, one of the main things he's known for today. Uh, And it's still regarded as very respectable by historians of science today. Uh, But anyhow, in terms of his Christian life, um, a lot of historians consider him a forerunner of John Wycliffe. If you don't know who John Wycliffe was, he was like the Martin Luther of England a hundred years before Martin Luther was born. He was teaching the same stuff and causing a reformation in England. The only reason you never hear of him is because his reformation wasn't successful. Um, But pretty much Wycliffe stands in this guy's shadow. Or or he's standing on his shoulders, at least. Um, Now, you might ask, okay, if this guy had somewhat, um, you know, he could talk back to the popes, he he could defy Catholic doctrine and practice, why didn't he end up dying? Well, he didn't suffer the same persecution as the Protestants because he accepted most of Roman Catholic doctrine. Where Martin Luther and Jan Hus and those guys, where they're going to go wrong in the eyes of the church is they're going to say, hey, half these doctrines are wrong. Robert didn't do that. And that's why he could say the Pope's the Antichrist, but he doesn't get killed. Whereas Martin Luther will say the Pope's the Antichrist and all these doctrines are wrong. Now all of a sudden they're like, get him. So anyhow, the next guy, another British guy, Alexander of Hales, 1170 to 1245. Um, He worked his way up in the English church to archdeacon, became rich in the process. And from 1220 onward, he lectured theology at the University of Paris. So he goes there and he becomes its most distinguished teacher. His greatest student was the next guy we're going to talk about, Bonaventura. Um, Now, his work is important because it leaves three landmarks on church history. First, he was the first scholastic or schoolman to join a new religious order of preaching monks, the Franciscans. If you remember, it was a it was before I went over the crusades, I talked about this new order of mendicant monks where you had Franciscans, Dominicans, Cisternians, and all these guys. They were all forming during this time. Okay, so at first they were like lay movements, but he's the first one of the scholastics to say, I'm going to join one of these orders, and in so doing, remember the Franciscans were all about feelings, and you don't have to be educated, he changed it. Now the Franciscans become these like really smart, educated people, he's one of the people who changes it, he changes it big time. Um, So now uh, monasticism and scholasticism come together, and that's going to be very normal, because you start looking at the rest of these scholastic thinkers, they were all monks as well, um, just in different orders. Um, So First thing is, he, was, uh, he, he joined a, a monastic order. Second, he was the first schoolman to use Peter Lombard's sentences rather than the Bible for um, his textbook lectures. So think about it. For the lectures, normally the professors would read from the Bible. He's like, you know what? You guys could read your own Bible. We're reading from Lombard. Why? Because Lombard took all these issues and gives us what the Bible says and what church fathers say. He's like, this is more useful for us right now. Now, of course, what's more useful than the Bible? Nothing, but um, but that's what he did. And once he did that, almost every professor, henceforth for the next probably three, four hundred years, made Lombard's book the main textbook. Um, that's how Lombard ended up being so so significant and so influential. Um, and then third, he defined the doctrine of the treasury of merits for the saints. And, you know, I'll come back to this because when I get to August uh, I mean, Thomas Aquinas, I'm going to have to explain this. Uh, the treasury of merits, is, it is not a good doctrine. Um, but anyhow... He also argued against Peter Lombard that in the sacrament of penance, he's the first one to say, no, it is the act of the priest that leads to the forgiveness, right? It's what cleanses the inward spiritual guilt. And eventually the church will agree with hail. Now, the first of his landmarks... Nobody had a problem with that. Martin Luther was an Augustinian, right? So being part of an order of monks isn't a bad thing. But Protestants definitely dislike him for the second and third landmark. Treasury of merits is a bad doctrine. And like elevating a man-made systematic theology over the Bible and instruction, not a good idea. Now the next guy, Bonaventura, he was Hale's uh, great student. His real name is Giovanni de de Fidanza. Speaking Italian is not easy for my English-speaking tongue. Um, but he joined the Franciscans in 1243, just like his teacher did. So he's going to be Franciscan. He takes the name of Bonaventura, which means good fortune. His life dates 1221 to 1274. And... Um, Eventually, he becomes a teacher at the University of Paris from 1248 to 1255, and he writes commentaries on Lombard's sentences. Think about that for a second. Lombard writes something. Now scholars are writing commentaries on what he wrote, um, which, again, is only going to increase its influence. Now, in 1257, he becomes the head of the Franciscan order, and he wrote the official biography of Francis of Assisi. Um, which, again, uh, legenda Um uh, But anyhow, like, how do we know anything about uh, Francis? A lot of it comes from this source. Um, and like Robert Grossetesti, he made use of Aristotle, but he subsumed it into his Augustinian Platonic worldview. Whereas Robert kind of kept them side by side, this guy um, was able to fuse them and somehow make it subordinate to Augustinianism, which I don't know if he was consistent with that. Uh, Bonaventura also taught that it was impossible to know God through through reason that you can 't know him through reason that you have to learn him through experience, so this guy was a mystic now if you don 't know what mysticism is, mysticism is the idea that rather than through your mind and your intellect. Um, that's how you experience God. He's like, no, it's through your feelings. Like you reflect and meditate upon God. And in a state of vision, you will see glory that you can't even describe with words, you know. And so that's mysticism. That's mysticism. And he was a, a pretty big scholar uh, that was also a mystic. And so he said people should detach themselves from material things, look within the self to discover the depths of God's spirit. And I got to say, that sounds very pagan to me. That's not where truth comes from, from looking within. That's what Disney would have you believe. But it's actually quite the opposite. Now, this next guy, uh, Albertus Magnus. So Albert the Great. We have an Albert the Great here. Makes great tea, great coffee. But this Albert, Albert the Great, a little different, 1193 to 1280, so he lived a pretty long life. Um, He was probably the foremost champion of Aristotle during this time and wrote commentaries on all of his works to where Christians don't need to read Muslim commentaries on Aristotle anymore. You got this Christian commentary on it. Now, the... Two previous guys were Franciscan monks. This guy becomes a Dominican monk. He taught at both Paris and Cologne. Cologne's in Germany. Um, And he argued that science and religion were complementary. Philosophy and religion are complementary. we got to find a way to put these things together. Now, Magnus's claim to fame is that his most famous student was Thomas Aquinas. That's his pupil. So sometimes... You are more known for the guy you produced than, uh, than even what you were able to produce. And he recognized that. He, like, his pupil, Thomas, dies six years before him, and he recognized this man was great. He spends the rest of his life promoting what Thomas wrote and taught, saying, you got to listen to this guy. This is the greatest thinker that, you know, the church has, has, has ever seen. Um, and it's kind of interesting. Um, oh, where was the quote? Um, I probably have it on on the next slide. Um, But yeah, this guy was was definitely a, a supporter of his pupil. So now we move to Thomas Aquinas. I'm going to be on him for a while. Um, Thomas Aquinas, 1225 to 1274. If you want to pick somebody's brain about Aquinas, uh, Brian had to do a lot of Aquinas research to write his PhD dissertation. So um, all I'm giving you is an introduction. Uh, But if you want to nerd out over coffee about this medieval schoolman, um, because this stuff doesn't put you to sleep, then Brian's your guy. Um, Now, Aquinas was the greatest scholastic thinker of all time. He was born in Naples, which is in Italy. He was the son of a Lombard noble. And you know what's crazy about this, right? So he wants to be a Dominican monk. Um, his family wants him to go into secular work. But in 1244, he joins the Dominicans anyway. So his rich family has him kidnapped and thrown in prison until he will give up on this. And when he says, I refuse, they then hire a very loose woman sexually that's known for being promiscuous. And they sneak her into the prison cell where she tries to seduce him. And so he resists her seduction and, and p- people are like, what in the world? Like, I mean, if you think about it, that was the trap. He couldn't run. It's not like he could pull a Joseph and get out of there. And I mean, she she tried everything to get him to, to fornicate with her, but he wouldn't. And so eventually his family's like, all right, well, man, there's no getting this guy to budge. If that didn't work, nothing will. So they understand that he's... Uh, You know, he, this is what he's dead set to do. So they release him and he continues with the Dominican order. Now he studied at the university of Naples and then Paris and then Cologne, which again, Northwestern Germany, it was at Cologne that he came under the tutelage of Albertus Magnus. Um, and, and here's the thing, Aquinas As brilliant as he was, he would stumble over his words and he talked slow. And if you would ask him something, he wouldn't just spit off an answer right away. He had to think. That caused some of his classmates to think he was dumb. In fact, his nickname was Dumb Ox. They called him a dumb ox. There's Thomas the Dumb Ox. And Magnus rebuked them. And I think this is somewhat prophetic. He said, this dumb ox will make such a roar in theology that he will be heard throughout all the earth. And that's true. I don't know the name of anybody that was making fun of Aquinas that was at school with him, but we've all heard of Aquinas. Um, So sometimes the guy who's not the the quick on his feet, fast, you know, speaker, sometimes that's not the smartest guy in the room. Sometimes it's the guy like Aquinas that thinks for a little bit before, you know, he starts uh, he starts spouting things off. Now, once you get to 1252, Aquinas teaches at Paris, and then from 1261 on, uh, he's part of a traveling papal college where he's going, a college in this sense meant like they were teachers that would go throughout various Italian cities. Uh, He was a very popular lecturer, but it was only after his death that the church recognized how great of a scholastic theologian he was. He was the deepest thinker of all the Catholic thinkers, and to his credit, he lived a very blameless life. You know, whether you love him or hate him for the doctrines that he gives to the Catholic Church, um, the fact is he, he did live a very consistently sanctified life. Now, his masterpiece is called uh, Summa Theologica, is how we say it in English, but he never finished it. And the reason he never finished it is in the last few years of his life, he gave up writing. He just said, ah, I hate writing. Everything I write stinks. People are like, really? What's what's wrong with you? Now, some people say he had a nervous breakdown or a mental breakdown, and that's why he stopped writing. Other people say, no, he had a vision during communion of God where he got a glimpse of God's glory, and what he wrote was so cruddy compared to the glory of God that he's like, what's the point of writing anymore? No matter how hard I write, no matter how beautiful or eloquent I say, it will never match the real glory of God. Um, And that's probably now whether or not he imagined a vision, I think that's more likely than him having a mental breakdown. Um, so he probably just eventually when especially when you understand what he believed about God, how human language can't actually describe him in a real way, I could see how somebody who follows that to its conclusion could eventually say, why write anything about God anymore? you know it's you know it's it's, it's a waste of time. So anyhow, number of things I have to talk about when it comes to Aquinas. First, I don't appreciate them like having a haircut on purpose that matches my balding pattern. So no, just kidding. The haircut's called a tonsure. For some reason they'd have a full head of hair, but they shave a bald spot and then walk around that way. I guess they it was the reverse yarmulke. Uh but anyhow. Aquinas' main project was to reconcile Aristotle's philosophy with Catholic teaching, and he did this a lot better than Bonaventura did. Aquinas considered Aristotle's philosophy to be the supreme achievement of human reasoning. In fact, he was so impressed with it, part of Aquinas' thinking was, how can I explain a pagan getting this close to getting God right? Because he felt that Aristotle got God mostly right without the Bible, without ever meeting uh, anybody who could tell him what Moses wrote. And so Aquinas is perplexed by this. Like Aristotle nearly got it. He just didn't have the Trinity. How is this possible for a pagan just by using reasoning alone? Um, And so where Aquinas landed on this is he said reason could reveal true things about God. And Aristotle succeeded at that. Um, and so what he would what Aquinas would say is that divine revelation simply brings Aristotle's philosophy to perfection by revealing things like the Trinity. So he'd say Aristotle's reasoning laid the foundation of a rational knowledge of the universe and then divine revelation built a temple of Christian truth upon that foundation. Now, I got to say I absolutely hate that. I do not think that human rationality and reason and logic is the foundation that we then use the Bible to build on top of. It's the opposite. The Bible, divine revelation is the foundation. And then we use philosophy as a handmaiden to the queen, which is theology, to help build and articulate our theology on top of it. But to, to switch it like that, just because you're impressed with Aristotle, man, he's brilliant, but he was, he was wrong on this. Now, Aquinas believed there's two realms of knowledge, nature and grace. He's going to be the first to make this distinction, and it's going to give him a very unique anthropology or doctrine of humanity. Okay? He believed that God's creation of Adam, even before the fall, that Adam was in a condition where his body could be at odds with his soul and his emotions could be at odds with his reason. So think about that. No sin yet, but... Our our existence could still be out of whack. There's something lacking, even though we weren't sinners yet. So what he said is God had to deposit an extra grace within Adam, that that God had to give an extra supernatural empowerment that enabled Adam's body and soul to be in harmony and emotion and reason to be in harmony. And only through this could he glorify God. So I want you to think about that. that. That is tantamount to saying that God did not make us complete before the fall. There was something that was missing, and so grace is what filled that hole. So what that means then is the fall becomes very different to Aquinas. He says all that happened in the fall is that we lost that supernatural grace. So now we die, but he said the body and and soul and um, and the emotion and reason, they're exactly like they were before the fall. They just now don't have that extra grace to help them be in harmony. That's what the fall did. So he would say our reasoning abilities and our capacity is exactly as capable as Adam's was before the fall. And we would look at that and say, that's nuts. That just can't be right. But remember, this guy's trying to explain how Aristotle, you know, came up with a a philosophy that impressed him so much. So Aquinas would say, look, humanity, we inherit Adam's fall because Adam is the head and source of the human race. But the way that the fall affects us is we, we've kept all of our natural powers that we would have had if the fall never happened. We just lost that gift of original righteousness, and that's what creates disharmony between body and soul, emotion and reason. And because of that, our capacity for virtue has been weakened, but it hasn't been removed. Now, this is what I would call weak-sauce Augustinianism. Because remember, Augustine gives us a very biblical approach that no, the fall wrecked the whole man. We were made perfect. But the fall means we've been infected by sin in our mind, our will, our reason, our body, our emotions. We're in bondage to sin. That's what the fall did to us. There's no way in Augustine's mind our ability to reason is like Adam's would have been before the fall. Now, Aquinas is an Augustinian, but this is where he lets his Aristotelianism trump his Augustinianism, and he starts tweaking with the fall. So you get this very watered down version of the fall. Uh, and again, this was all because Aquinas was impressed uh, with this pagan's intelligent intell- intellect and reasoning. Um, so it was, but I will say this in fairness to Aquinas, if there was something Aristotle was clearly wrong on, like the universe being eternal or human souls not being immortal, Aquinas would correct Aristotle with the Bible. Um, He he would do that, but otherwise he was willing, on account of Aristotle, to completely change the doctrine of the fall. And in some sense, Roman Catholicism holds Aquinas' view of the fall over against Augustine's, whereas we Protestants hold Augustine's because Augustine's is biblical. It's Romans chapter 5. It just is. But anyhow, now, Aquinas' masterpieces, his two ma- he wrote a lot of stuff, but his two main masterpieces are Summa Contra Gentilius, uh, which is, you know, summary against the Gentiles or handbook against the pagans, and then Summa Theologica, which is his summary of theology. Now, the former one has four books. I got pictures of them there. And these were designed, so Summa Contra Gentiles* was designed to help Christians present Christianity to Jews, Muslims, and refute their errors. It was an apologetics handbook. This is where you get his great argument, the cosmological argument. Um, Now his defense is broken into four parts. Uh, The first three use reason and philosophy to establish God's existence. So we're not going to use the Bible. Let's just use reason, logic, evidence, and we'll show you that God exists. And then the fourth book is now we're going to show you what the Bible says doctrines of creation and providence. Um, or, or no, the, he, No, the fourth book, I'm sorry. Third book, um, the first three use reason and philosophy to establish God's existence, the doctrines of creation and providence. The fourth part, he explains the truths that only the Bible could show you, like the Trinity, the incarnation, and the resurrection. And so again, when you're going through your basic, philosophy class at, you know, junior college or even the university and you're taking it as a freshman and they're talking about the cosmological argument and they give a 15-minute explanation, just understand that what they're pulling from is thousands of pages of what he wrote in, in this. Now, of course, his main masterpiece theologically is this one, the Summa Theologica. It was a systematic theology that put to shame Peter Lombard's. It really did. It put to shame all that came before it. He wrote it to replace Lombard's, although it takes centuries for that to happen. Information moves slow, but nobody would say Lombard has a candle to Aquinas on what the product was. Uh, I mean, this, this is huge. Look at all those volumes that I have there. Imagine especially this is small print this bottom right one imagine how many books and codexes this would take up in handwritten form back then cuz this was before the printing press the fact that this guy wrote this much just blows my mind but but anyhow summa was arranged as a disputation i talked about disputations last time disputation is where you you will take an issue um you'll you'll pose the question or the inquiry you'll then ha- you have to articulate the arguments on both sides. One side says this, the other side says this. You have to know both their arguments so well that you could argue on either side if somebody asked you to, but then you have to show which one's right. And then you open up for challenges from other people. This whole thing is written that way. And so what he does is he takes 512 disputed questions. That's a lot. He divides each question into a bunch of articles or points of inquiry. And so once you learn how to read Aquinas, he's actually pretty fun to read. But at first, you have to know there's a method to how he writes. Um, so he begins by presenting the arguments and evidence against his position. So sometimes people will go straight to his articles and say, oh, Aquinas believed this. And it's like, look, you, you knucklehead. Um, the first part of anything he writes is actually what he disagrees with. But he's presenting it as if it's his own argument because he wants to be fair. He wants the other side to say, yeah, you know what? That is what we believe. He's, he's not trying to straw man them. So first he gives the arguments against his position, right? And the evidence against his own view. He then gives their Bible quotes, their church father quotes, their philosophical arguments. He lays it all out, right? But then what he does is he says, but here's why my position differs from this one, and he gives you his position, and then afterwards, he gives you the evidence for it, and then he closes by knocking down every single point he brought up for them at the beginning, and he always does a great job knocking them down. By the end, you just feel like, dude, he whooped them. He whooped them. You know, he's just, it's that, Good. Aquinas is very interesting to read, but if you are not grounded in your biblical theology, be careful because he makes sometimes persuasive arguments for Catholic doctrines that we disagree with. Um, Now, of course, we could show biblically why they're wrong, but his method of arguing is, it's just persuasive. Um, I think lawyers learn a thing or two about how Aquinas would do this. His whole goal was to give a complete account of whatever fi- whatever question. All 512, he wants it to where when it's said, it's the final word. There's nothing more you could add to this. All has been said. That's how thorough he wanted to be. Now, again, Aristotle was his favorite philosopher. Augustine was his favorite theologian. Um, he agreed with Augustine on predestination. He tried to combine them, but again, he messed up the fall. Um, and so, There's a couple things uh, about Aquinas, three big things that he is known for in addition to all this. The first, as I've already mentioned, is the cosmological argument. And I'm not going to get into a long explanation of this because, um, again, you've probably heard of it before. But he believed that God's existence could be shown by reason. Now, Anselm, if you remember, said the same thing. But Anselm used the ontological argument that God is the highest thing we could conceive of. He's the cap of our thoughts, and therefore he must exist. I like that argument. Augustine didn't like it because it requires no evidence. Remember, Anselm's argument fits good with Plato, right? Our mind can intuit true universals. And what's the truest universal? God. That's why Anselm... Being a Platonist, a realist would make that argument. Augustine was more of a—he a, a, was more into Aristotle. Here, he would say, "No, you cannot just assume. Well, because I could think of God, He must exist. You have to provide evidence." And so that's where he's going to disagree with with Anselm, and he's going to say, "No, Aristotle's right. All human knowledge comes through experience. That's how we know anything is through experience. Therefore, God's existence needs to be proven from." Experience. We need to prove it from from the world rather than this inner idea of uh, inner ideas of your mind. So what Aquinas does is he offers five proofs for God's existence. He calls it the five ways, and all five are based on the idea that the world is an effect that needs a cause, and the cause is God. So, like for example, he would use the infinite. Um, regression argument that like okay you didn't make yourself right you came from your mom and dad who came from their mom and dad who came from their mom and dad and it keeps going back but it can't go back forever it can't be an infinite regress okay there has to be a start of the movement. Now, once the movement gets started, it'll keep going, but there has to be a starter. And so the fact that you exist means God exists because you came from someone who came from someone who came from someone, right? That's one version of his argument. Another version of his argument is just that the universe itself is contingent, meaning it's sustained by, it didn't cause itself, it couldn't cause itself, and therefore it had to be caused by an uncaused cause, which would be God. And so really this is where he gets into you have contingent, contingent beings, which is uh, something's contingent if it's caused and sustained by something outside of itself. Um, It's dependent. Whereas he says you can only have two possible things, contingent and necessary. Something, if it's necessary, means it has to exist. It's not caused. It's completely independent. It's not sustained. And if you follow the logic to its conclusion, there can only be one necessary being. There can't be two. And so he says, all you have to do to prove that there's a necessary being is prove that there's something contingent. Oh, look around. Bunch of contingent stuff. Therefore, there must be a necessary being. That's the crux of his argument. But how do you get there? Well, by your experience, you're contingent, you're looking at contingent things. And so that's how, uh, that's how you would get there. Now, Aquinas would say that if you were trained in philosophy, you could reason to this conclusion without the Bible. Um, But he said, if you're not trained in philosophy, then you just need to believe it because the Bible says so. Again, as a presuppositional apologist, I don't put a lot as much weight in that argument as Aquinas does. But anyhow, um, and I wrote a book on it, but anyhow. So knowing uh, another thing that uh, uh, Aquinas is known for is that he taught that all of our knowledge through God of God is through analogy. It's what he says is analogical. Uh, anything we say about God refers to created things. So if you say that God is strong, what do you mean by that? You're thinking of maybe a lion or a bear or like some tractor that's pushing thousands of pounds you're like that's strong so when you say the word strong that's what you have in mind and you're comparing it to God's power okay and so because of that because of that it's an analogy because God's not strong in the exact same way we're just speaking by way of a comparison to something we experience because remember he says you only know things through experience I experience a tractor pushing more weight than I can. So through that experience, I understand what strength is. And so then I take that and I try to apply it to God, but to an infinite degree. But no matter what, since the language is a comparison to something that's made, it's not going to be a perfect comparison. So he says all language about God is necessarily imperfect. Um, And so now some people disagree with him and say, no, our words about God could be univocal. Univocal means our words actually represent exactly what God is. But Aquinas is saying, no, He's infinite. Our words are finite, so at best they must be analogical. Now, this might seem like nitpicking, but it is actually really important, Um, you know, because if you get this one wrong, you open the door to theological liberalism, open theism, all this stuff. And again, in in, in Brian's uh, dissertation, he covers all this because all these heresies we're dealing with today that question God's sovereignty all do so because they reject analogical language. Um, so Aquinas happened to get this one right <laughs> is is what I'm saying with that. But anyhow, this is controversial, you know, all the way down to. Uh, oh, by the way, Aquinas' belief in analogical language is Aristotelian, though. It's the belief that all human knowledge is mediated to the soul through the senses. Now, this is still controversial to this day. Critics would say that, listen, once you claim, that once you acknowledge, like, so once you say God is strong, and I'm thinking of tractors being strong, but but I understand that God's more powerful than a tractor, so... I'm making the comparison, but now I'm acknowledging that God is infinitely strong. They would say, now the analogy disappears. Now you're saying something true about God. But Aquinas would counter and say, well, it's still analogical because it's still human words, which are finite and your own finitude can't truly understand what it means for God to be strong. In other words, you could say that God is infinitely strong. You don't know what strength is like in an infinite being. You don't know what love is like in an infinite being. You don't know what knowledge is like in an infinite being because you're not infinite. So again, you could say the words, but do your words truly represent reality when you can't even imagine what you're saying? No. So it's like at best these words are true, but they all fall short. Uh, And so he was a a, a big fan of, uh, on this bottom line, a big fan of uh, what we call uh, apophatic language. Like some of the early church fathers, like Gregory of Nazianzus, they would say, you can't say what God is. You could say what he's not, you know. So you could say God's not limited by time, not limited by space or change or fallibility. But that's not the same as saying what God is. Like saying God is infinite is just saying he's not finite, You get what I'm saying? So they're saying you can never accurately say fully what it is, but you could say true things about God by saying what he's not. And that's where we, that ends up being the cap of our knowledge, the cap of our ability of being able to explain God. Now, the thing that gets Protestants uh, all up in arms over Aquinas was he gave the Catholic Church its robust defense of transubstantiation. And transubstantiation is the doctrine that we typically would find most offensive. Although I would also say we don't understand it. I think it's wrong, but what we think it is, is not what you think. You know how like in Princess Bride that word, I don't think it means what you think it means. That is our problem when it comes to this, okay? It it really is. So he's going to be again the first Catholic theologian to offer a complete argument for transubstantiation. The term was coined by Hildebert of Tours. He died in 1134. It was officially accepted at the Fourth Lateran Council, 1215. That was even before Aquinas' time. But again, he gives the robust explanation for it. Now, how he does so is he uses Aristotle's philosophy of substance and accidents to give a theological explanation of what happens to the bread and wine during transubstantiation. So let me just really quickly define it. Transubstantiation is the idea that when the priest holds up the wafer and the wine and says, this is my body, this is my blood, that it turns literally into Jesus's body and blood. And that Jesus, in a sense, is re-sacrificed every mass. Every, uh, that's what the mass is, the taking of communion, right? Um, and that you need this for weekly forgiveness of sins. Okay, so you're like, that's crazy, that's cannibalism. Are they saying that we, uh, you know, we're, we're eating flesh and blood? Well, this is where you have to understand what he's pulling from Aristotle. Aristotle said there's two kinds of things, substance and accidents. And when I say accident, I'm not talking about a car accidents. And when I say substance, I'm not talking about matter. As Aristotle wasn't. A substance is the inner reality of something that's non-material. So for example, we have chairs here. So the, the physical chair that you sit on, that you pass gas on, whatever is happening on that chair, that is called an accident. The four legs, the fabric, the thing you could touch is the accident. But chairness is the inner immaterial reality. That's the substance. So for example, there are other things in this world that have four legs um, and that are flat, but they're not chairs, tables. um, I'm sure we could think of other things, but right. So you, but when you look at that, you know, it's a chair. Why? Because it has this immaterial substance that is common to all chairs. And through your immaterial mind, you intuit it. But with your experience, you can only experience the accident of a chair, right? Meaning the actual physical chair, okay? So I want you to think about the word transubstantiation. Okay, we're talking about transformation, but of substance. But by substance, does Aquinas mean flesh or does he mean an immaterial, invisible inner reality of something. See, the bread and the wine is the accident. But what he would say is when the priest says, this is my body, this is my blood, he would say that God miraculously changes the substance. The inner reality, the invisible non-material reality of the bread is now the flesh of Christ. And the immaterial reality of the, the wine is the blood of Christ. In fact, he would say the, the flesh and the blood is in both the wafer and and in the, the, the wine, but he would say the accidents stay the same, meaning God doesn't change the accident, so the bread is still bread, and the wine is still wine, and it tastes exactly like bread and wine because it is bread and wine, where this transformation of substance occurs is at the spiritual, immaterial, invisible level that you just have to accept by faith. So when you hear it that way, it's like, okay, that's nowhere near as bad as what I thought it was, right? Because for the longest time, I would have just thought they are saying we are eating his flesh and blood and, you know, and, and that it, it just sounds weird and that he's being resacrificed sacrificed and stuff like that. And so, but that's not, that's not what's being said. That's not what's being said. Now, a little more about this. Um, his definition, kind of like I just alluded, avoids the problems that a lot of us would have with it, but it doesn't make it right. The Bible doesn't say any of this this is all speculative this is speculative gas passing is what it is i mean there's there's no biblical substance to this jesus saying this is my body they're like well he says this is my body he also says i'm the way do you think he's a road he says i am the door is he made out of wood i mean come on i mean so anyhow i digress but uh, but the point is they're not saying what they're normally accused of being uh, of saying but at the same time, it's not biblical. Um, but going back to what I what I said, in his view, bread and wine do not become flesh and blood in a physical way. Uh, this is something that's perceived only in the mind. The substance isn't physical. He would also say, since substance is not physical, it's not local. And if it's not local, it's not contained in time and space. And so he ruled out the belief in the local presence of Christ. So when people, when some Catholics do talk about, well, the local presence of Christ is in the, the, the the communion because he has now been brought into it through the words of the priest that actually goes away from Aquinas's view of transubstantiation. Now they're saying something that sounds a little more crazy, but they'll still say it's substance and not the accidents. Um, So anyhow, and and then, you know, I, I put that back up there. Um, the blood and the the flesh and blood is said to be in both the bread and the wine and the reason he had to say that was they stopped giving regular people the wine a long time ago well, they were only allowed to have the wafer. So people are like, well, how are they get in the blood of Christ? You'd be like, well, the flesh and blood, the substance is in both the wafer and the wine. So if they get the wafer, they're still getting the blood and they're still getting the flesh. And it's like, well, that's kind of convenient. You know, I've, I've seen uh, Roadrunner episodes where like the coyote draws a tunnel on the wall and then Roadrunner's is able to run right through it. But the coyote can't. This is what that is. You know, you just could say, well, it, it's the, the wine's in the, the blood's in the bread, too. But, you know, the, the interesting thing is it wasn't long after this that they didn't even let people take the bread. Eventually they start saying, well, listen, you might spill the wine, shaky peasant with your shaky hands. And so then you're dishonoring the blood of Christ and you might get crumbs on the ground. So you're dishonoring the, the body. And so to mitigate from that, they switch to the wafers. That's why they do wafers. So there wouldn't be crumbs. But they still said, yeah, you're not taking it only once a year. <laughs> Will you take the Lord's Supper? And so then, so then the question is, if that's the case, then, uh, then how, how does the average Catholic attending mass, if they weren't able to take the Lord's Supper, how are they receiving this sacrifice of Christ? Well, real simple. The mass is both a sacrament and a sacrifice. Remember, they thought sacraments were something that actually infused you with grace, um, so they saw it as that. Like, if you partake of the Lord's Supper, you're being infused with that grace that makes you more like, uh, more like Jesus, um, you know, and all that type of stuff. Um, but once they weren't able to take it at all, he's like, all right, well, we need to explain this. And the explanation was the Mass is also a sacrifice. Okay, because if you understand... In the Bible, a sacrifice is an offering made. A sacrament is something that a person receives. Okay, the person doesn't make a sacrifice. The priests make sacrifices because that's what happens in the Old Testament. The priests make sacrifices on behalf of the people of God. Okay, that's that's how that works. And so what he would say is, even if you don't take the sacrament to get that infusion of grace, every week the priest says, this is my body, this is my blood. He is offering Christ as a sacrifice on your behalf, and so it forgives you. Now, this is where we say, but they are re-sacrificing Jesus every week that they do this. This is is abominable. Um, which if that is what they believed, it absolutely is abominable because Hebrews makes it clear, Christ died once and for all. Well, I can't tell you exactly how Catholics view this now, but what I can tell you is Aquinas would not disagree with us. He said, listen, it is a sacrifice, but it's not a re-sacrifice. What's happening is that God taps into the once and for all sacrifice that happened on that cross 2,000 years ago and brings the reality of that into the mass every week, but it's not a re-sacrifice. It's just a connection to the original sacrifice. So again, in the view of Aquinas, are they re-sacrificing Christ every week? And are they literally eating his body in his blood? Do they believe that the cracker literally turns into his flesh? No, they don't. And so we have to be careful in how we critique them. My critique of this whole operation is none of it's in the Bible none of it. And it it actually contradicts certain things that are in the Bible. So that's why this could be rejected. But we don't have to get in the business of uh, making people sound worse than they really are. Um, Present them accurately, then shoot them down. And that's what I'm doing right now. Even though it's a history class, I'm not necessarily supposed to shoot them down. I don't mind. It's fun. Uh, But anyhow. So, yeah. And, And by the way, rich people... And this is going to come up again. Rich people would be able to pay priests to say extra masses for them. This is my body. This is my blood. So that way their departed souls could get time knocked off purgatory. All right, priest, I'm dying. I'm rich. I'm donating to the church a boatload of money. I need you to say at least 20 extra masses for me because that might get 100 years off of purgatory for me. And the priest is like, deal. And so that is where this kind of theology leads. It just does. And that's why it is problematic. Now, Quinas on some miscellaneous doctrines. Um, he also worked out in detail the difference between mortal sins and venial sins. As Protestants, we don't use those categories. Catholics do. Well, this time, buddy, you committed a mortal sin. You're in trouble, mister. Whereas, you know, Johnny over there, he only committed a venial sin. And you might say, like, what in the world is a mortal versus venial sin? Well, the church always believed there's a difference between more serious and less serious sins. The The idea that all sin is sin is not biblically true. All you have to do is read the law. You know, murder Requires the death penalty. Thievery just means you pay them back plus 20%. If all sin was the same, then shouldn't they all have the same penalty? Obviously, God sees some sins as worse than others, and that's why they have different penalties. And even Jesus told Pontius Pilate that the one who has the greater sin is the one who betrayed him. Well, greater sin means that not all sins equal, right? So this idea that all sin is sin, that's not biblical. Now, all sin will get you in hell, okay, so you could say that. But, you know, the Bible implies that some people's experience in hell is going to be worse than others because maybe they've done more sins, greater sins. If you think Hitler and Mother Teresa are going to, you know, have the same level of, of hellfire, I, I think there's just... You, you, we need to go back and look at the Bible closer. Um, that being said, though... Just because some sins are greater, some are lesser, because 1 John 5, 16 and 17 says some sins lead to death, others don't, that doesn't mean that justifies the Catholic doctrine of mortal versus venial sins. Aquinas came up with this again to solve problems. He's trying to harmonize things. And so he wants to give a definitive answer because you go back to the early church times, they debated on this because they say, well, okay, We understand that all sins could be forgiven when you convert and get baptized. But what if you do something like murder or adultery or idolatry after you were baptized? Like what about the guys that when the sword was to their throat, they then worshiped Caesar. And then after the persecution was over, they tried to come back to Jesus. Would penance forgive those sins? Can penance cover all sins or can it only cover the lesser ones? And so Aquinas said, well, here's how it's going to work. Mortal sin... Is the worst kind. This kills your soul. Venial sin, and venial just means pardonable. He's like this is for less serious sins. They wound your soul, but they don't turn your soul away from God. And I think this is a really good um, um, visual display of it, where like the you're in the state of grace when everything's good. to commit a venial sin, you're still in the state of grace, but you're a little bit outside of it. You need to make it right. You commit a mortal sin, you're outside of the state of grace. You're separated from God. You've literally lost your salvation. A venial sin doesn't cost you your salvation, but it maybe gets you some more time in purgatory. Uh, a, a mortal sin will condemn you to hell. And so the question is, you know, uh, what could you do about this? Like when it comes to venial sins, you just, you know, you could do your penance and, and nobody questioned whether or not that works. But Aquinas makes it clear that you can't do anything about your mortal sin, but God in His grace Can. And he's chosen to do so by giving the church the power over the sacraments. So if you commit a mortal sin and then you go to the church and the priest gives you certain sacraments and you do them, then by God's power, he is moving you from that state of being outside of grace back into grace. So this idea with mortal sin is you could lose your salvation and then regain it. And this can happen multiple times in your life. So we Calvinists, you know, we say that we like, uh, um, the tulip, right? This would be more like the daisy. He loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. Or in our view, we're like, he always loves us. Um, but we do have to repent, but there's no penance or anything like that. Christ's um, Christ's once and for all sacrifice covers the, the least and the worst of our sins. The only The only way that proves not to be true is if you uh, refuse to repent and fall away from him; otherwise, um, and in that sense, you just prove you were never saved. But um, but that's not what that's not what Aquinas is obviously saying. So he's saying with penance you can be brought back in. Um, but he says if you, um, yeah, you could re-enter the state of grace. And so yeah, I covered covered all that. Oh, actually, one more thing. This bullet right here. This lets you know that by this time, grace was no longer defined biblically. See, grace means unmerited favor. God giving you the forgiveness and salvation you don't deserve, the favor you don't deserve. By this point, grace was no longer unmerited favor. It was spiritual medicine. They saw grace as you're sick, you need medicine. The church was given the the NyQuil, I guess. And then you go to the church and the priest gives you the little cup and you drink it. And now you got your spiritual medicine. That's what grace was to them. And, And the sacraments were just how it was dispensed. Um, So yeah, you're a hamburger, but a hamburger is no good without ketchup and the sacraments are the ketchup bottle that squirts it out. It's that simple. And and the church owns that bottle. So you need them. Um, Now, one more set of miscellaneous doctrines. Um, Aquinas also gave detailed doctrinal formation to the idea of treasury of merits. This is the one I was telling you about that is... (laughs) It's problematic, it just is. Okay, so remember, all sin requires some temporal punishment. Um, So Christ atones for your mortal sins, and that means you won't go to hell. But you still have to go to purgatory for all the sins you haven't paid off. Meaning even the sins that Christ saves you from hell, you still owe him a temporary payment in Catholic doctrine. Again, that runs opposite to, to what the Bible says. But you still owe him a temporary payment. You won't go to hell, but you owe him this temporary payment. Now, you could pay off that penalty either with penance... Or an indulgence. An indulgence is a money payment given to the church. You know, you give them the money so that it could go to the the work of the kingdom of God. Right? And so most people die not paying off all their debt to God. And so they have to pay it off in purgatory where they're set on fire and the fire burns that sin away. How long you're going to be in purgatory depends on how much you have to burn off. You just never know. Okay. And so pretty much if you die without paying off all your temporal punishment, you suffer there. But the Pope can grant immediate release of a soul from purgatory because they believe that God gave him control of the treasury of merits. And so at this point, you would need to know what the treasury of merits was. Well, you know that Christ had no temporary sin, right? He had a surplus because he was only good. But then you get the apostles and you get the people that are canonized as saints. They lived lives that were so much better than the rest of us that not only was there temporal sin paid off so they didn't have to go to purgatory, but they actually earned extra. So let me just give like a monetary analogy. If by the time I die, I got to pay Washington, D.C. $100,000. That's just what they require because I use their roads and, and all that kind of stuff. Whatever. Let's say that's what I got to pay them. And anything that I don't pay them, then somehow they capture my soul and beat me for a certain amount of years until they've got that money, right? But if I die and I've paid them that hundred thousand, then it's clear. But what if I pay the hundred thousand, but I have a hundred thousand left over? You know, well, that's what the treasury of merits the saints had left over goodness and swellness and that leftover goodness god then puts in a little spiritual treasure box called the treasury of merits and so if albert back there owes god 300 years in purgatory because he was bad and his coffee wasn't as good as as it was supposed to be one day but then let's say saint francis you know was so good that he earned a thousand extra years, then the Pope could take 300 from that, apply it to Albert, poop, and his his soul now pops out of purgatory and he's good to go. That's the idea behind the treasury of merits. And given that uh, this was given to the the popes, what is eventually going to happen, and this is what starts the Protestant Reformation, is that uh, a lot of people start paying money um, to get, time knocked off of purgatory, you know, or let's say your grandma dies and you're just missing her and you're pretty sure she's in purgatory because you know grandma was heavy on the rum. Um, So now you could go to the priest and say, listen... Do you think the Pope would grant an indulgence if I paid X amount of money to get my grandma out of purgatory? And then he'd say, sure. And there was even this this salesman ring back then um, from uh, Johann Tetzel, which said, as soon as as into the coffer a coin rings out of purgatory a soul springs, you know, and was using that. And so people started paying to get their loved ones out of purgatory. And then Martin Luther believed this. He then went and visited Rome and saw that all that indulgence money was being used to build big Palaces for the popes. And he's like, What the? And Luther had a mouth, so I'm pretty sure it was profane (laughs) what he said. But this is what gets it all started off. He's he's looking at this. This is just wicked. Now, Aquinas gave them this full theology. Now, somebody you know came up with the idea first, but again, Aquinas is the one who articulates all of this, and the church (laughs) makes great use of it. Now, for what it's worth. Great use meaning bad use, but to great avail. I mean, it benefited the church a lot, um, but not the cause of Christ. For what it's worth, Eastern Orthodox always rejected indulgences, and uh, so did the Protestants. And today, the Catholic Church does not sell indulgences. Um, If you were to ask them about it, they would say indulgences is a legitimate concept. They've never repudiated it, but they have not sold them in a long time because they know how bad it looks. Uh, So, Aquinas' significance. Significance of Aquinas, along with Augustine and Calvin, he is in the top three of all Western theologians. Uh, Just his influence. Um, Probably nobody's more influential than um, uh, Augustine, but I would say Aquinas is as influential on Catholicism as Calvin is on Protestantism. And since Catholicism's technically bigger, Aquinas historically is the more influential guy. For us, it would be Calvin. But, uh, you know, historically, we would probably have to say Aquinas is the second most impactful theologian of of all time. Um, His intellectual depth and historic impact on the doctrine and practice of the church is certainly in a class with these other two figures. Protestants in the 16th and 17th centuries still leaned on big parts of Summa Theologica. They rejected the parts we disagree with, but there's some parts where they're like, nobody makes a better argument than Aquinas. His theology and impact is so comprehensive that it gets its own name. It's called Thomism. Um, Thomism refers to the doctrine of uh, Thomas Aquinas. And so uh, there's a lot of debate within evangelicalism today over Thomism. There's this concept called Reformed Thomism, where Calvinistic scholars are trying to retrieve as much of Aquinas' thought as we can, while still keeping those really Catholic elements out but in the process, they do absorb some elements that some people would be like, "Ah, it's a little too Catholic. And so there's a lot of debate over this. Some people say, get rid of Thomism. We don't need it. And then others are like, no, but we could use the ring. You know, <laughs> I mean, that's, that's really what, what it comes down to. And I'm kind of torn between this because I've seen Thomas resourced well, but I've also seen people use him so much that 15 years later, they crossed the Tiber. That's, That's the theological way we say a Protestant becomes a Catholic. Um, Sometimes people find him compelling enough to where they they swim around in his thinking so long, they start to think like him. Um, And that's why you need to swim in the Bible more than anything else, because that keeps the guardrails from you starting to map your thinking onto another human being's thinking. Uh, But anyhow... Given that we're at 820, I didn't finish. I have uh, two more guys I want to go through, uh, uh, Scotus and William of Ockham. And I figure I will just do that next time. Um, I'll just add it to, to whatever my, my next lesson is. So just understand, Aquinas is the peak. The next guy, Dun Scotus, can't stand Aquinas and dedicates his whole career to trying to refute Aquinas. And then the next guy after him, William of Ockham, Really destroys scholasticism, and um, yeah. So we'll, we'll we'll get to that. I'll be able to cover those guys fairly quickly, and then we'll move into the next sub.